Uh, for those of you who are visitors, or for those of you who may not have been to Liberty for a while, I thought it probably best to just introduce myself again and kind of keep introducing myself every week. My name is Dwayne Davis, and uh, I am working along with Steve Smallman as interim pastor here as uh, the senior pastor, Jeff Bradford, is leaving to uh, go to Christ the King in Raleigh. And I wanted to let you know a couple things. Some people have asked me about transportation, how I'm getting around. So for those of you who are anxiously waiting, the bike is fixed and ready. I have even ridden it to Brewery Town. So um, I'm trying to keep the uh, ratio of beards and bikes equal between Fairmount and Liberty East. Doing the best that I can with that. Uh, the second thing I want to say is, um, again, by way of introduction, I am uh, so encouraged by this service. Uh, I know that a couple weeks ago I kind of started on the same note. I just want to start again by saying um, I hope you're paying attention to and noting how grace-filled service has been this morning with Sarah's testimony and Mike's prayer and recognition of Susan and all that she has done. Um, you guys are just showing yourselves to me as a people and as a group who are relying upon God's spirit and that spirit is at work and it's so encouraging. Um, another thing I've been encouraged by is just to visit all of the home meetings. So I've been going around uh, now biking around, which is very unusual. If you, <laughs> if you knew me before, I was not an urban bike commuter. Uh, you would realize how strange this is. Um, I told the staff that we should actually uh, take a picture of me every three weeks or so to see the transformation to sub from suburban geek to sort of urban biker. See what I look like in a year. Um, but at any rate, I've been, so I'm going to all these home meetings and, uh, they've been encouraging too. It's been so great to see how, how different each one is and how different each of the leaders are and everybody's been so welcoming and so receptive. And so I thank you so much again for, um, just for looking to Jesus together and for growing together. It's been very encouraging to me personally, um, to be with you. So, um, Steve Smallman and I are working on a sermon series, and the sermon series, basically, we started with the last couple of weeks by introducing ourselves and telling our stories, and what we thought we would do is we would continue to tell stories of gospel transformation, of people who start to see Jesus with some new eyes and um, as they encounter him, and so we're, we're doing that in this time of Lent to kind of lead up to Easter. So, um, the story that we're looking at today is the story of... Zacchaeus in Luke 19. I usually like to think of myself as quite discerning when it comes to the movies that I watch. So I like a lot of arts films and documentaries. But even though it's slightly embarrassing to admit, I have to tell you, I um, have one weakness when it comes to movies. That is, I love emotional dramas based on real life. That's the category that pops up. Whenever I turn on my computer and go to Netflix, it suggests for me emotional dramas based on real life. If I give you one example, Rudy. <laughs> I love that movie. I know it's awful. <laughs> I know it's not a good movie, but it makes me cry. <laughs> Actually, I was at the Fairmount home meeting, and they told me there's a name for these kind of movies. Do you guys know this? It's like the, the male equivalent of a chick flick is called Guy Cry. 
Have you heard that? There's really a name. You can go to Wikipedia and see the list, like Goodwill Hunting, Rudy, Hoosiers, all those kind of movies. All of those would be in my personal collection. And um, I even there's even a subgenre. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. <laughs> there's even a subgenre of these kind of emotional movies based on real life that I love, and that is the movie where a radically inspirational teacher reaches into the lives, surprisingly, of despondent students and sort of pulls them up from the wreckage that their lives have become. Um, the more emotional, the more inspirational, the better. So that's like, you've seen all of these movies. It's the same movie, just set in different time period. So you've got Dead Poet Society, Dangerous Minds, Stand and Deliver. Is anyone old enough to remember that one? Okay. Yes, I could watch. <laughs> I'm going to go home tonight and watch that movie. And... Um, I think uh, one of the, the reasons I love these sorts of movies is, in fact, how um, implausible they actually are, how um, counterintuitive they run, how different they are from the way that I used to treat my students when I was a teacher. So I taught for five years in a public high school um, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And what I found about myself is if there were despondent students, if there were outcast students, if there were students who decided to sort of put their heads down on their desks and kind of give up for the day, one of the things that I would do is I would just leave them alone. <laughs> Let me pause for water. I would always, I, and I, I'm, not, I'm not proud of that fact, but I would leave them alone because it's always easier to leave that kid alone. As soon as you enter into his life, as soon as you wake him up, that's when the real tr trouble starts. That's when things get difficult. That's when he starts to you know, cause trouble in the other class, and you have to call in administrators, and things get messy. Um, things get problematic pretty quickly. And so for me, it usually wasn't worth it because I was always tempted to see students more as... Um, a problem that needed to be fixed rather than as someone who was lost that needed to be found. Okay, I would see him as a problem that needed to be fixed rather than someone who's lost and needed to be found. And what that means is I would see them as in my way, as an inconvenience, as opposed to looking at myself as being on their side, okay, as, as working for them and trying to help them through whatever they're going through. And, and I think that um, you guys all have the same human tendency when it comes to relationships, um, whether it's people that are close to you or people in the church or your coworkers and things like that. I think you have the same tendency to um, see people sometimes as problems or as an inconvenience as opposed to seeing them as folks who are perhaps lost in some way whenever conflict arises. Um, and needing to be found. And what happens then is we start to move away from people. We start to distance ourselves from people. This is kind of what Julie was talking about when the service started. We start to um, avoid people. And what can happen is um, we can really easily sort of, um, in our avoidance and in our withdrawal, try to get back at people. We do all sorts of things along those lines. And it seems like human nature, like as I was thinking about this this week, it seems, you know, it, it, that sort of avoidance of withdrawing from people when things get difficult seems sort of inherent in what we're doing as humans. I mean, if you get on an elevator, you know, and somebody else is already on it, you automatically move away. If, if a friend of yours hurts you, you know, you're going to say, I don't want to call them back. That's not what I want to do. But there's something um, deeper going on. There's a little bit more um, self-protection that's happening. 
And um, as we talked a couple weeks ago, I said, hey, listen, I know you guys are probably tempted to grow discouraged. I think um, when it comes to uh, uncertainty and the uncertainty that you may face, and today the sort of special um, kind of application for that is not only the temptation to grow discouraged, but the temptation to, in that discouragement, do this, this process of moving away from people, of pulling back, of sort of starting to avoid people, and um, of, of allowing difficult relationships um, to move away. But what I want you to see today is that Jesus is very different. Okay? I want you to see that Jesus moves towards people. He loves in a, in a fashion that I can only call intrusive. He reaches out toward people into the most disturbing situations to find the most broken and the most lost people into things that we not only uncertain, but totally difficult. And as he reaches in, he gathers them to himself, and he can't be deterred because he has no interest in self-preservation. He's not counting the personal costs that it might, might, uh, might be to himself. He's not sidetracked by his own self-interest because Jesus, as Luke tells us here, is on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is going to the lost. He's loving lost people. And he's rescuing them. He's restoring them in their brokenness. And that restoration is is just demonstrated and exemplified in this story of his reaching out to Zacchaeus. And since we have a Savior, Jesus, who loves broken people intrusively in this way, he's calling us to move not away from people but towards other people. He's calling us to seek out those who are also lost. So I want to do three things. I want to look at what it means for Jesus to be one who goes to the lost. I want to look at what it means for Jesus to love and what that love is really like. And I want to look at what, what the effects of that love are, what it means for um, lost people. So the first question we're really asking ourselves is, what does it mean to be lost? Okay, keep that kind of in the back of your mind as we start to look at Zacchaeus and what's happening here. We have to sort of establish that. Okay, everybody that Jesus seeks throughout the book of Luke is lost in some way, all right? When he begins his ministry, what he says is, I am coming to preach good news to the poor. He says, I'm coming to give sight to the blind. He says, I'm setting the captives free. You have those who are lost in the institution. You have those who are lost physically. You have those who are lost economically. And then throughout the gospel, we see him do that, those very things. He's constantly healing people, going to the most marginalized in society. So he'll find lepers. He's going to women. He's ministering to um, tax collectors and to sinners. And so it's actually no surprise. The story um, that, we, that we come into in, in cha- chapter 19 may be a little bit of a surprise, but what you get to right before you get there, which um, I probably should have put in the... Um, in the reading today, is Jesus going to heal another blind man as he's passing on his way through Jericho in Jerusalem? So keep in the back of your mind, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to die um, for humanity and for their sins. And he stops in Luke 18, and he heals a blind man in a similar situation to the one that we, we heard about last week when Steve was preaching. And the blind beggar is one of those kind of people that we would obviously think that Jesus would heal. It's someone who needs healing, someone who's who's the oppressed of society, someone who's the outcast of society. But what I would argue is is sort of the uh, more surprising thing is Luke 19. When we get into this passage where he reached 
reaches Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is described as both wealthy and a chief of tax collectors. He's sort of in a ruling class. And while we might expect Jesus to go to the blind, and we might expect him to go to the poorest, it should uh, strike us as a little bit of a surprise that he's willing to go to those who maybe not are the oppressed, but those who seem to be the oppressors, these tax collectors who are rich and who are in the ruling class. And see, at the time, just a very brief historical background, at the time, um, Israel was being ruled by the Roman Empire. And as they were, they were sort of a, a nation that was subservient to that higher nation, Rome. And as Rome was over them, as you might expect, there was sort of a fierce strain of Jewish nationalism. So all the, all the, the Jews would say, hey, we've got to kind of cast off this cloak of bondage rid of these people that are oppressing us. And the tax collectors, like Zacchaeus, they were Jews who worked for the Romans. Okay, They were Jews who worked for the Romans, and they would basically pay a flat fee up front, and that would give them the privilege to go to anybody else in the town that they're working in, in the vicinity that they're working in, and take whatever they want. So they would steal from them, and they earned the, the title and the reputation of those who are extorting money, basically as thieves. And they were hated and they were despised. Um, as I was reading this week, I came across a very helpful historical uh, modern-day parallel as I was reading from a guy who actually spent most of his life living in Egypt and living in Palestine and living throughout the Middle East. And he said, basically what these guys are is collaborators. And if you can imagine, um, this is the scenario. Imagine somebody who's a Palestinian living in the West Bank today in Israel but working for the Israeli government. Okay. Think of how all the Palestinians would think about that person. That guy is a collaborator. He's somebody that we can't trust. He's somebody who is working for the enemy. And this, as much as anything else, explains why Zacchaeus has to run ahead of the crowd, why he has to climb the tree. Because it's not only that he's short, that's sort of the, 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 the fact that we might remember from when we were younger in Sunday school and the little song that's kind of clever and creative and all that. But... The crowd itself is blocking him out because the crowd is not going to allow a collaborator into its, its, into its presence. And it's the last place that Zacchaeus wants to be. If you are a collaborator with the ruling enemy, you don't want to be caught alone in a crowd of people who hate you and who despise you and who are hostile to you. It's too easy for somebody to stick a knife into his stomach. It really is. That's the kind of scenario that you're looking at. If you're an FBI informant and you're hanging out with New Jersey crime bosses, it's very easy to, for you to find yourself on a boat wrapped in chains thrown over the side. That's the situation that Zacchaeus is facing. A more local example. Well, no, seriously, okay, so camp out there just for one second. Keep that image in your mind. That's how much he would be hated. Um, that's how much hostility the crowd would have towards him. And thinking that way, it's very helpful to show us what Jesus does. See, this um, explains how Jesus knows Zacchaeus' name. It seems that um, Zacchaeus is hiding up the tree. He's, he's climbed up a tree. He has done two things that dignified Middle Eastern men don't do. One is run, and two is climb a tree, which, think about it, I mean, it would be strange enough if we were kind of outside of the Berean after the service and we saw a run, you know, grown man just run by and then start climbing a tree. Well, it is Philly. It probably wouldn't be that strange, actually. Um, 
But it's even more strange if it's sort of a grown, wealthy politician, an upper middle class uh, man. And so as soon as somebody catches sight of him, they're going to say, look, it's Zacchaeus. He's up in the tree. We got him where we want him. We finally got him. I wouldn't be surprised if they're actually picking up stones to start throwing at him because he is, he's in a bad place. Okay, he's hiding, he's done things that are undignified, everybody hates him, and the crowd is probably gathering around him. And right at that time is when Jesus steps in to intervene. It's just in the nick of time. Because Jesus has come to seek lost people. Zacchaeus, as you can see, is a lost person. And although um, it may be unsettling to us, what Luke is trying to say here is that everyone is lost. You see, the oppressed and the blind are lost, but the oppressors are also lost. The poor are lost, but the rich, sort of wealthy, are also just as lost. Those who are ruling are, those who are ruled are lost, but those in the ruling class are also lost. And that's difficult for us to hear, Because what Jesus is doing is sort of radically redefining the human condition. He's saying, listen, right here, as I'm about to enter into Jerusalem, I want you to remember that everyone is lost, which we don't want to hear because what it means is that I'm lost and that you're lost. And one of the things that causes us to move away from people, one of the things that causes us to not love people is an inability to recognize our own lost state. So Jesus is defining lostness. And what is lostness? It means that you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't hide behind all the things that you like to hide behind, whether it's wealth or whether it's our education or whether it's our money or whatever it might be, our status. He's saying that all of us are lost, all of us are in the same boat, all of us are in the same situation. Um, let me give you an illustration. I recently watched a documentary. So, again, I promise I do not only spend my time watching cheesy movies. <clears throat> Um, and it was called Parking Lot. I'm not sure if anybody's ever seen it. It's uh, about these guys who live at, at, in Charlottesville at UVA, and they work at a um, basically a parking lot where you have to pay, just like we have here in Philly. You have to pay to park and everything like that. And what's really interesting is these guys are all um, sort of very well educated. They've got grad degrees in things like philosophy and biochemistry, but they've sort of rejected mainstream society by deciding just to live and work at this parking lot, okay? And um, they ride bikes, too, so. Uh, What happens is these guys take it upon themselves to sort of be the guardians of common decency at the parking lot. And so what they do is they spend all their time pointing out the arrogance of people who come to park, and they talk about the sort of elitism of everyone who drives giant SUVs. And those guys, oh, the bigger the car, the more arrogant that person is probably going to be. And they talk, and, and so they, what they want to do, I mean, they, they are like meeting out justice a $1.50 fine at a time, okay, as they sort of talk. And, and what I, as I was watching this movie, what was really interesting is I loved the guys. Like, I, I really liked them. I wanted to like them because they liked the kind of movies that I usually like. They liked the music that I like. They were um, fairly, you know, um, 
indie rock and hipster and all that kind of stuff. And, and I thought, yeah, those guys are, gonna, are sticking it to the man. That's awesome. They're anti-authoritarian. Everything was great. But what happened was it, it blew me away. I actually stopped watching the movie five minutes before it was over. Because by the time I got to the end, what I realized about those guys is that they were just as arrogant and elitist as the people that they were rejecting. Okay, I mean, and they would go to no, they would go to great lengths to chase people down and to find them and to kick tires and whatever they could in their kind of small little world. They had set up a system of penalizing all the people that they thought were elite, but the system that they created was just as elitist. It was just as exclusive. It was just as arrogant. It was just as human. And so you have uh, something that's common to uh, humanity. It's something that we all do, which is basically we'll get um, sinned against by one human institution, and then we join another human institution thinking that that will save us from, from our sins. We think that that will save us from our problems. We think that will help us uh, to be fine. And you have to start to ask yourself, what are some of these systems that I've been defining myself by? What have I been reacting against? What have I been setting up for myself? You can do this in a real theoretical way or a real personal way. In a theoretical way, uh, you know, have you chosen capitalism and found in it a system of economics that explains all things and sort of dragged that into Christianity because it makes you feel better? Or have you seen the weaknesses of capitalism and sort of said, no, I'm going to become a socialist, I'm going to respond against that, and I'm going to um, sort of drag that into Christianity? is Christianity is not just another human institution. That's the point. Christianity is not just another system. As um, Leslie Newbigin sort of famously stated, Christianity critiques every human institution. Christianity exposes the weakness and the failings of capitalism. It exposes the weaknesses and the failings of socialism. It exposes the weaknesses and the failings of liberalism and of conservatism. It, ex it exposes the weaknesses of, weaknesses of idealism and the weaknesses of cynicism. Because Christianity is about a man. It's about a man who loved selflessly, unlike anyone has ever loved. Um, if I can give you um, a more personal illustration here. It's about my daughter, Abigail. When Abigail um, was about three years old, I learned that she had a stronger will than I do. That's humbling. If you recognize that your three-year-old has a stronger will, if I can add, basically what happened is she wouldn't go to sleep at night. And so what we ended up having to do, I'll spare you the long story of night after night at night, trying to get her to stay in her bed. She wouldn't stay in the bed. What, what we had to do eventually was shut the door, unscrew the lights, and remove everything out of her room. Not a good parenting tactic. I don't recommend it. <laughs> and you know what she would do? She would run circles in her room. And I would find her three hours later, face down on the floor, not on the bed, asleep. <laughs> it's her personality. And so for the last three years, it's kind of been struggle after struggle after struggle trying to um, deal with the sort of strong-willed child or the, the stubborn child. And so I feel like one of the things I'm doing is I'm always telling her what, to do, what, what she's doing wrong. I'm always pointing out, hey, Abigail, here's the six, seven, eight things that you have done wrong today. <laughs> Wouldn't you guys like to have me as a parent? <clears throat> and one of the things I've realized is that I'm always evaluating her by my own human standard. And so what I've tried to do, two things basically have helped me to change. One thing is a person said, hey, other people just do things differently than you do, even your own children. 
just be aware of that. Just because she's doing something that you wouldn't do doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. That was very helpful. Um, but the second thing is um, I, I decided to start encouraging her. So I decided to start seeing um, what, what's, what's the positive thing I could say. So she would do 16 things wrong. And then the 17th, you know, I would say, Abigail, very good job putting the fork away. <laughs> you know, like there's, <laughs> there's a bowl of cereal over here and there's milk, but she did get the fork, so I'm like, great job. And so I was trying as hard as I could to be positive. And one of the things that I would also do is um, I came across this little book that said, start, don't, don't evaluate on human standards. Basically look to see where the spirit is actually at work. And that was, that was fascinating and helpful because what I started to do is say, hey, can I tell her something that's actually valuable? I noticed as I watched myself, what I was doing is as I, I was just trying to be positive. So I would say she would do four, four or five things wrong and come downstairs, and I would say, hey, Abby, nice dress that you have on. You know what I mean? Like sometimes our comments are very superficial and very um, sort of basic. But I started to look for ways that the spirit was at work. And so what I would do is I would go through and just watch and watch and watch and watch and watch. And as soon as she obeyed once, instead of just saying, hey, great job, thanks for putting the fork away, whatever it was, um, I would say, hey, Abby, did you know that God's spirit is at work in you because you're obeying your mom? And her face looked real confused at first. And then it's then sort of lit up, you know, and she was like, okay, cool, that's great. You know, so I, Can I pray for you that the spirit will continue to work? And so I prayed for her and then started to ask her questions like, hey, Abby, have you seen the spirit that's at work in your brother, you know, and, and all kinds of things. And then the coolest thing that happened the other day um, was Julie um, had had been interacting with the kids a little bit, and I think she had gotten mad at them or something. I really should have ran this example by her before we talked about this. And um, what was really cool at the end, after she um, had gotten upset with the kids, she went back and to the kids, and Abigail said to her, hey, mom, the spirit's at work in you. Like, she, she totally got it when she saw that for that was happening there. What, the point I'm trying to make is this. You see, we have theoretical ideas and we bounce around from one to the other um, system, but neither of them are the grace of the living God entering into our lives. And then on a personal basis, we try to, we jump sort of from being too positive to being too negative or something along those lines, but none of them are the grace of the living God at work in each other. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to see the lost to recognize our own lostness and to realize that nothing that we do can, that nothing that we can muster up will sustain us. Nothing that we can muster up on ourselves will satisfy us. Nothing that we pull out of ourselves is going to heal us. We have to look and see what he's doing. All of us are broken. All of us are lost. Okay, let's get back to the story. This is point two. Jesus loves the lost. Okay, the crowd has noticed that Zacchaeus is there and they're filled with hostility. And they're most likely mocking him. And I want you to see how Jesus loves. Okay, watch how Jesus loves. First, he looks at, at Zacchaeus. He sizes up the situation. He knows exactly what's going on. And that's always the first step of loving. You always have to look at the other person and see we spend too much time thinking about ourselves. And when Jesus understands what's happening, he steps in and he says, look, come down. I'm coming over to your house for dinner. He gets close to Zacchaeus, as close as he possibly can. And um, not only does he get close to him, but this love actually involves an exchange. 
Okay, and I want you to pay close attention to this. Jesus not only identifies with Zacchaeus by basically taking the shame that is on him. So imagine this. Let's put it this way. Here's the crowd, and they're exerting all of their hostile energy towards Zacchaeus. What does that produce in Zacchaeus? It produces shame. It produces guilt. He's an outcast. He can't face the crowd. He can't face himself. He's lost. He may not even be able to be aware of it. And what Jesus does is Jesus says, I'm going to come to you and accept you. I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to invite you into into my... I'm going to invite myself into your house in a real intrusive way. I'm going to give myself over to you. So he's basically taking Zacchaeus shame and he's giving to him acceptance and he's giving to him love and he's giving to him um, all of the blessings that he has to offer but notice then what happens here's the key all of the crowd's hostility where does it go it shifts from Zacchaeus onto Jesus okay what Jesus does is not simply something just giving something away he actually takes upon himself the guilt. He takes upon himself the shame. He takes upon himself the crowd's hostility. Zacchaeus is free. They don't care about Zacchaeus anymore. Basically, they're saying, hey, what about this guy? Who's this Jesus? What's he doing? How does he have a right? And Zacchaeus must have thought, they're not looking at me anymore. I'm totally free. And Jesus is coming to eat with me. He's coming to be with me, and he's coming to join with me. But notice, Jesus is decidedly not safe himself. This love comes at a great cost because the crowd is going to continue to follow him and say, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. The crowd is going to continue to say, you are the one now who must be put to death. You're the one who we would see crucified. You're the one who we would see killed. And you see, throughout all of Jesus' ministry, he shows us this sort of love, which is kind of a great exchange. Um, it's, it's a great exchange. Jesus is a guy who goes around taking what people have and giving back to them what he has. Okay, and you see, he goes to heal a boy and raise him from the dead. Not only does Jesus give life, Jesus takes on the uncleanliness that would have been associated with death. And think of the stories that Jesus, Jesus tells. When he talks about the Good Samaritan, he, the Good Samaritan obviously gives, uh, you know, gives to a person life and time and money, but that means that he loses his health, he loses his time, he loses his money. And think of the father running to prodigal. This is who would abandon his reputation, he would abandon his dignity to bring love and to bring acceptance. And all of these things point ultimately to the great exchange which will take place on the cross. All of them point to the cross. This is where Jesus is headed. This is where he's on his way to. And at the cross, you will find a love that is unlike any love you have ever experienced. This is unlike any love that you have ever known. This is not a self-promoting love. This is not a self-exalting love. This is not an aggrandizing love. This is not Jesus trying to make a name for himself. This is not Jesus trying to say, I'm better than everyone else. This is a lowering. This is a lessening. And it subverts every one of our natural inclinations. See, throughout all of human history, people have been lording themselves over others. They have been commanding others. They've been putting themselves in charge of others. They have been punishing others others in their arrogance and in their pride and jesus is saying do those things to me on the cross so that i can free you and rid you of those things 
And so that means that no matter how um, ashamed you are, no matter how disturbing the situation you might, might find yourself in, no matter how much guilt is heaped upon yourself, no matter what you have suffered from all types of abuse or how exhausted you are with failing to live up to your own human standards, Jesus is meeting you there and loving you with an everlasting love, calling you, come to, to dine with me. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you rest. It's really intrusive. He gets into your mess. One of the most um, intrusive loves I've ever experienced in my life was a couple years ago. As Julie and I were trying to make, make our way through seminary, we had a couple who came to us, and we had looked at our finances and said, we need to either cut them in half or we need to um, cut, cut our budget in half or make twice as much money. And then all of a sudden, Henry, Henry and Nancy Tucker appear. This is a family that lives um, near us and that goes to our church. And they say, hey, you guys, you know what? <clears throat> We'd like you for you to move in with us, with your three kids. I mean, this is an older couple who has no children. Um, and they said, hey, will you guys come and live with us so that you can cut your ex- expenses in half and make it through seminary? And I was blown away. I was humbled. And not only this, listen to what they did. They put a fence up in the backyard and put a swing set in there for our kids. They were living upstairs. Get this. They were living upstairs in their nice, you know, room. They basically built another room in the basement. And instead of putting us in the basement, they moved down to the basement. And they put us upstairs. The hardest thing for me to do was to say yes. I had never experienced love like that. So if you, once you come the face with Jesus, you say, he says, come in, I'm going to build things for you. I'm getting out of my room and I'm giving you my room. And it's, uh, it's difficult for us to, to, to even receive it because of how powerful it is, how amazing it is. That's, I can never pay those guys back. All I can do is use them as sermon illustration <laughs> week, week after week <laughs> and just say, so they're, they're like, their fame will live on as long as I'm preaching. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy and Henry. I'll tell them to listen to the sermon online. That is the kind of intrusion that the grace of Jesus brings about in the lives of his followers. And I want you to look then finally at the effects of this love, the radical response that we see in Zacchaeus. Here's what I want you to know. All of the commentators that are writing about Zacchaeus spend all of their time talking about this last thing. They want to know, why does Zacchaeus give half away? Shouldn't it have been more? Could it have been less? Was he trying to earn his salvation? What's happening here? But I want you to see that this passage of Scripture is about what Jesus has done. It's about Jesus as much as it is about Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus' response. But I do want to look at his response briefly to, show, to see what happens and what are the effects of this grace. First of all, he calls Jesus Lord. It mattered the most to him. Suddenly, all the things that he was allied to, suddenly all the things that he was worshiping don't mean as much as they did anymore. The money, the wealth, the status. Think of what he must have been thinking. My money can't offer itself up in my place the way that this man just did. It can't take on the hostility that this man just did. It wouldn't suffer and it wouldn't die for me. 
So, see, it's the, the money is almost an incidental thing. The money is almost an afterthought for Zacchaeus because it just doesn't mean anything anymore. And he's certainly not trying to buy himself salvation. He's certainly not trying to earn anything because he was free the moment that Jesus said to him, I'm coming over to your house. So what you have in the giving away of everything or the half of things is Zacchaeus saying, I will joyfully respond to what you have done. I want to be identified with you. I want to throw everything else that I have away. It doesn't mean anything anymore. I want to give it to the community. I want to give it out to those who who are around me. And he has become not someone who's breaking the law, but someone who's now obeying the law. But he's obeying the law in a radical new way. Um, So I was was reading um, a guy named Terry Eagleton, and he's a a Marxist literary critic. This is kind of a strange place to find this. But he was describing the difference between obeying the law and receiving grace. And he said that people who, and and this guy understands the Bible um, better than many Christians that I know. It's sort of amazing. But he said... um, Listen, try, uh, living by the Spirit rather than obeying the law is sort of like someone who has needed a Spanish-English dictionary to learn Spanish. So you need the dictionary at first, which is the law, and you're flipping through it, and you're trying to learn, and you have to keep coming back to it. But someone who has become fluent in the law doesn't need the dictionary anymore, in a sense, because they, their obedience super abounds. Do you see what I mean? So basically, they, they are following through with all the dictates that the law would have, have laid before them, but they're doing it in such a way that it's overflowing, it's abundant, it's, it's exuding with joy. And Jesus' love has transformed Zacchaeus into one who's fluent with the law in giving away all that he has and paying back with restoration. And notice also that Jesus calls him a son of Abraham. And that means not only that he's accepted, but he takes on the mission that Abraham had. So God, after the fall, chooses Abraham to restore humanity to himself. And now Zacchaeus puts himself in line with those who have been thus restored. Said to himself, Jesus says, restoration has come. Restoration has arrived. I'm here to transform people into the truly human. I'm here to transform people into worshipers. Of the living God. And so we're left to ask ourselves what are some things that we conclude? What can we take away from these things? Uh, those of you who are being called like Zacchaeus, who hear Jesus' voice, he's saying, I invite you to come in. Don't love from a distance. Stop loving from a distance if you are and start moving towards people. Start to intrude into the life of those who are lost and those who are broken. Um, if you feel lost today, start to look for Jesus and see this radical acceptance that he's offering to you. If you're someone who doesn't feel lost, beware. Start to look and see how lost you might be. What are the faults and what are the failings of the system that you're adhering to? What are the faults and the failings that you are experiencing personally? And run to Jesus, admitting that you are in need of him. And if you've encountered Jesus before, but you feel distant from him, don't forget the gospel, sort of as we've been preaching about the last couple weeks. Don't forget what he has done for you in taking your shame and giving you acceptance before him. And don't give up on your mission. 
don't forget that he is calling you to other lost people, to those who are um, hurt, even those who may be hurting you, to those who are um, beaten down and those who may continue to, to beat you down. You may think of your personal relationships and sort of think, my friends are hurting me. You may look at the church around you and say, it's not what I once thought it was. You may look at the city of Philadelphia and say, I'm being beaten down by it, by my neighborhood itself, and it continues to do so. And um, here's the, the lesson here is that some of that pain and some of the difficulties aren't necessarily going to stop. You have to recognize that we are following and worshiping a person who would go to the cross to die. So some of the pain is going to remain in following him. Some of the cost is going to be present there, but he's calling you to keep intruding into the lives of those who are around you, restoring relationships that may have been broken. Keep intruding into Philadelphia and into the neighborhoods that are around you, looking for people to love. Keep planting churches. <laughs> That's a personal one. <laughs> keep planting churches. Keep sending missions into the world. We're intruding into the world with the love that Jesus has given to us. And don't let the fear of pain and cost get in the way, which is a heavy thing to say. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Martyrs throughout, the, for, throughout human history have been able to endure the pain and suffering that they're facing because they can sort of step back and say, what's the worst thing you can do to me? Kill me and mean it. What's the worst thing you, is that all? Is that all you've got? Hey, they did that to him. But not only that, we haven't even finished the story. I mean, Easter is coming because Jesus rose to life. He didn't just die to take on your shame. He can give you new acceptance because he's one who has risen from the dead. He's one who has reigned victorious over all the sins that you may face. He's the one who, who, who will take all of the sin and all of the guilt and all of the shame, and it will be no more. And don't you see what he's doing? He's advancing us to that point. He's moving us to that place. He's saying, I have come to take your shame, and I want you to take part with me. And as we go, we are heading towards a future place where the writer of Revelation says there will be no more pain. There will be no more of the suffering. There will be no more of the crying. There will be no more shame and death. Can you imagine that? And it's guaranteed and secure because he rose from the dead because he reigns and rules. Jesus is calling you to himself, and he's calling you to those around you who are lost. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion, and I pray that it would serve as a reminder. I pray that it would serve as a reminder that you're following a man who died on a cross. I pray that the bread would remind you that his real body was broken and that the wine would remind you that his real blood was shed for you. And remember also at the same time that you follow a man who came out of the other side of death alive and who is now living and reigning and loving you, calling you as he did to Zacchaeus, saying, come down quickly from the trees that you're hiding in I'm longing to dine with you, to live with you, to share all of the blessings of a loving Father with you. 
Let's turn to him in prayer.